You're listening to Fly By Night, a podcast by FedEx Pilots for FedEx Pilots. Brought to you by the FedEx Master Executive Council of the Airline Pilots Association. And now, here's your host, MEC Communications Chair, Captain Chris Lee. Back with me on today's podcast is Scheduling Committee Chair, Captain Marty Harrington. And with him today is A300 PSIT and Secondary Line Replacement Working Group member, Captain Mike Davidson. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Well, let's just jump right into it. Mike, how's the build week going for December? Speaking specifically from the Airbus, we have a typical build week. We saw in the pairing construction uh, two weeks ago, we saw a lot of unturnables and we saw a lot of one-way routings within our bid pack. One of the biggest issues we probably saw specifically for us is we saw two distinct company request targets uh, that we worked toward for the uh, captain seat. It was below in a buy-up range of 81. And for the FOs, it was at 93. So it was a 12-hour difference between bid packs, and we usually don't see that. And what that really just tells us is that the FOs are a little bit undermanned and the captains are definitely in an overman like we've been in the last couple months. So what does one-way routing mean? So a one-way routing, typically uh, what we like to see from a build or a pairing construction standpoint is a plane or and or crew is desired to go to a city and then it returns the next day or the next night. So in a typical non-one-way routing scenario, you would have the plane or the pilots going back and forth every night on night hub turns and you would see them doing the same thing on the day side. Well, in one-way routing, they decide to bring it uh, to that city, and then it lays over and goes somewhere else. Right. They're trying to match lift to load. So sometimes freight going into a city doesn't match going outbound. So they'll have an Airbus come in. They'll either move that Airbus to another city on the way out and then have another airplane come in for the freight outward. For our November, end of November, Thanksgiving, and, and December, we usually see an uptick on that. But what we saw this year was... Definitely. From the company side, we thought they were very efficient in what they were doing. We saw some um, routings that we have not seen in, in years past. So um, for the build, it was relatively easier on the captains, the lower end. And then on the FOs, it was probably a little bit more difficult. You'll see more departures per line. You'll see, uh, obviously, you won't see any buy-up like we've had in our seat. But for the builds for the month, it's pretty typical. The one thing I will say is that Christmas did fall on a Monday, and it falling on a Monday allowed the pairing design to, we call it cutting. So instead of laying over, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword. We Most pilots probably would like to be home Christmas. You're going to see that a lot. You're going to see home on New Year's and Christmas because where the holidays fell this year. Right. Monday's a big positive for Christmas. That's right. And then on the flip side, though, what you'll see is we couldn't maximize how we typically turn cities and turn pairings. So it will be a little bit more choppier around the around the holiday. Obviously, week three, week four of the five week bid month is going to be a lot heavier in flying, uh, just the pre-Christmas loads, predicted loads. And then weeks three and four, the companies extended the sort by roughly an hour. They've done greater than that, which makes it more difficult to build lines that week three and four. But this time, it didn't seem to impact uh, the day and night duty limits as much as it has in the past. We did see also they did make a sort, I believe, on Monday of week three, the Sunday night to Monday. There'll there'll be a new sort kind of the week before Christmas weekend. There'll be a sort that Sunday night. So what do you see being our busiest days for the month of December? Typically... 
about a week prior to Christmas is the heaviest loads we get in the middle of the night. So December 18th to 20th will probably be our, our heaviest freight moving through the sort those days. Well, December is a five-week bid month. Can you talk some about the credit hours? Overall, system-wide, BLGs popped up about two credit hours on average from November to December. Last year, average BLGs were pretty much straight across the board. This year, we had the drop-off, the post-COVID hangover. But from November to December, they bumped up two hours across the board, as I said. And uh, this is more typical of a peak instead of just uh, the exact same number like we had last Christmas. From prelims to finals, we had a lot of cancellations, I would say reductions in the 7.5. I think it was roughly 2,000 hours in the 7.5 that they were, they have the capacity to fly more in the 7.5 in the Airbus more than the other airplanes. And they, yeah, they cut a number of pairings in the 7.5 from the prelims to finals. But again, across the board, numbers are still up and everything's still looking pretty good for December. Any indication yet on how January is going to look? We've been asking about January. They're still working on January. I've heard a number of different things about where they're going to go in January. At the Joint Council meeting just last week, I mentioned they're parking 12 MD-11s, and I think they are coming off that number right now, and they might keep a couple more flying. I've heard nine, then eight, then seven. Yeah. But I think the numbers are still up in the air right now. And three weeks from tomorrow, we'll get prelims for January. And we'll have a better understanding as to what's going to happen in January. Well, let's talk some about the DART system. Scheduling gets quite a few DARTs. Can you talk to the pilots about that? Yeah. We, we love getting feedback from the pilots. Uh, our goal is to respond to DARTs within a day or two. I push the piece it to answer the DARTs in a timely manner. If you don't get a response from us within a day or two, you can email me directly. And uh, I try to at least, if we're, if we're doing research on a DART, I'll tell the piece to just send them an email directly and say, hey, we're working on an answer. A lot of times these guys will call them up and just answer them via telephone call if that makes more sense. I actually like calling. It's a lot better than writing the email Mike for me. is a telephone call guy. Uh, yeah. I'm more of write an email back person. But... For darts to us, scheduling and uh, to the scheduling group, we get a lot of darts concerning pay, and we got a, we get a lot of darts concerning is this legal. We have a contract enforcement team; they do much better with pay and legality questions than the the scheduling committee. Are there any darts you want to highlight here on this podcast? We got a couple darts, number darts in this month. One requesting, uh, the pilot suggested a minimum of 30 hours on all legs on a specific pairing to allow for two sleep cycles. And the company keeps creeping system form to shorter and shorter layovers. We have contractual minimums. Uh, I think back in 2015, we, we changed it from a 36 and 168 to a 30 and 120. That's a layover time. And that's contractually required. We have actively asked for many I would say every single month we ask for, can we have a reset here? Can we add layover time here? But contractually, the company doesn't have to, they don't have to add those layovers and it costs money. So we argue them every month. We ask for more, but sometimes we're not successful adding longer layovers. At cost, on top of what the CBA requires, we have to convince the company it's mutually beneficial 
following our charter in 25BB, quality life, and on their side, cost and reliability. We do, but we're not successful every time. But we argue almost every month, we add, add a reset, add more layover time here. We send a lot of our pairings to the Fatigue Event Review Committee and say, hey, what do you think about that? We get feedback from their fatigue modeling from their group. And like I said, we, we try every single month to, to add more layover time, and we can't get it in every case. So another DART requested said, I would call fatigued on this type of trip after two legs based on my forecasting, my fatigue. Now, back in 2015, they separated the dispute tracks. And the question in this DART was, why aren't you disputing this type of pairing? We actually are disputing that type of pairing. I'm not going to say what pairing it is, but like I said, back in 2015, we split the disputes into two tracks. One is the system chief pilot track, and the other is the fatigue track. If fatigue is the sole reason for the dispute, I've said this many, many times, but to reiterate, if fatigue is the sole reason for the dispute, it must go down the fatigue track. When it goes down the fatigue track, we don't say we're disputing it. We conduct the scientific study on the sleep. They'll do fatigue modeling. They may do data collection, but now it's in the hands of the Fatigue Event Review Committee. We call those FERCs. We say, yeah, just FERC it. And... I would say since 2015, we have disputed pairings almost every single month. After I got this start as well, I called up Rob Bassett. I got to name drop him every time. He's our fatigue risk management chairman. And we are going to compile all of the previous FERCs or disputes that went through the fatigue track that have been completed and put that data out to the pilots so that they know that we are actually disputing a lot of pairings that they don't know we're disputing. Every single month we have disputes. So that was my point on that is, is to let pilots know we are actively, one, we're asking for more layover time. Sometimes we can't get it. And we are actively disputing pairings. But again, if fatigue is the sole reason for the dispute, it goes down the fatigue track. And you don't highlight these pairings once they go down the fatigue track, right? We don't highlight the numbers. Yep because they want to do a scientific study that's unbiased by us saying, hey, this pairing is bad, tell us how bad it is. Fatigue reports help us out a lot. Fatigue calls. If you call them fatigued on something that we are disputing and they're actively tracking it under the fatigue dispute process, that helps us out tremendously. Again, I can't tell people to call them fatigued. You have to make that decision yourself. But uh, they do help us when we're battling these, these type of pairings. And you do not have to call in fatigue to do a fatigue report, right? We've said that many, many times. Thank you, Chris. Yes, we say it every time we talk about this. File fatigue report if fatigue impacts your pairing in any way. The one other thing about the fatigue calls and fatigue reports, also on fatigue calls, calling in fatigued. We had the fatigue quarterly last month. And almost all, they call them fatigue events. It's you calling in fatigued. Almost all fatigue events have another issue with the pairing other than just the pairing as built by the company. So it's either the hotel, there was loud noise, I couldn't sleep. Or there was something else that disrupted their sleep or delays or maintenance or weather. But almost every fatigue event has another cause why the pilot called in fatigued. 
Well, let's pivot some now and talk about the secondary line replacement working group. Mike, what can you tell the pilots about that? The SLG LOA in the 2015 contract lays out the plan and the course of action we had starting in 2015. We didn't start the group until 2018. 2018 was when they completed the upgrade. And right after the upgrade was complete, it was time to enter into the replacement phase. And why was there a three-year delay? Uh, The company was testing the crew interface, the new crew interface that we see. The SLG, the secondary line generator from 2018 is the current system we use today. Now, there have been some slight upgrades to it, but what you see is what they implemented in August, I believe, of 2018. So in 2018, Marty, we started the Slurwig, and the Slurwig consists of both sides of the SIG. You've got the union SIG and the company SIG. Our vice, Mike Piercy, and uh, from the union side, I'm kind of the representative of Marty. And then we have two other members at large being Anthony Zarafa and Corey Dubois. That makes up the union side. The company side is made up of the company SIG and a senior manager and a manager that they run crew resource planning. And uh, typically in the beginning, we would meet once a month. What we did from the beginning was, one, we just had to figure out what was wrong and what what were the issues. And that took probably six months at least to figure out what was going on with the new system and and you, at that time, you got access to all of the company insights, and you went through every insight that critiqued the secondary line generator. The biggest issues were transparency and control. On a month-to-month basis, typically other airlines have monthly reports that they can analyze. They can see how different solves and different impacts work. We currently do not have that. We do not have that in our contractual language. The company did agree to give us, as Marty said, the insights on a month-to-month basis. So we did see uh, the pilot's issues, and we compiled them, and we've got years of insights and, and the issues that the generator did, did have. Now, we've had nothing is perfect. We understand that. But our process was figure out the problem and see if we can find an, another vendor that would improve these issues that we have. Now, we did say 2018 was when we started this process. It still is uh, 2023, almost 24. The Slurwig, we started off with three main vendors, and it was Jepson, it was uh, NavBlue, and the current Adopt generator. And over the last couple of years, we finally decided with the company that Jepson would be our follow-on. And last October... We briefed all the managers that that was our final decision as per well, LOA. Well over a year ago. Well over a year ago, and we've been basically waiting for the company lawyers to sign the contract. What's the holdup? Last December, the contract we were going to sign had Jepson doing everything, and they were going to uh, keep our data in the cloud. They had a data breach, and the company said, we don't want them to hold our data so they had to redo all the contracts, and then, I mean, that took a couple months, and we thought we were going to sign it in the summertime last summer. They kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed. We're very close to the end game with Jepson to produce our new secondary line generator. Come January, hopefully we'll have some good news, and we'll start working with Jepson and have it on property that we can start testing it. And typically, it takes about 18 months from once we start testing. I think change is always going to be a... Uh, a deterring factor. 
in anything that you do. And you're going to see in the new interface, it's going to be a, a lot different than the current one. So even our pilots, the planners, everybody's going to go through some change. Uh, that's the expectation. Hopefully we can brief it and have good uh, communication back and forth how to help everybody through it. But we do believe in the new system and the um, the results that it will give. It, it does a lot better things than the current one. So I want to say also through darts, we get questions. The secondary working window will close. Like clockwork, we'll get half a dozen darts on why did this happen, why did this happen, why did that happen? Every month. So for that, we typically... In the piece, it will get them in the piece at uh, individual category, and we've been sending them to Mike to answer. Now that the uh, Jepson product is coming online, we're going to start a new secondary category under scheduling, and those darts will come directly to the group, and we'll be able to track it. We suggest that if you have a question on your secondary line, the first place to go is inside it to the company. If you don't like their response or they don't get back to you in a timely manner, or if you're in a hurry, they answer emails. They answer in their insights over the weekend during the secondary working window reasonably well. But if you dart us, we have to go to the same people that the insight would go to. And then so it's you're cutting out the middleman if you go to them first. And like I said, if you don't like the response you get from them or it's not responded to in a timely manner, definitely let us know and we'll intervene. Please, with your insight, will you please copy that and send it to uh, us via the DART system? In the secondary world, can you talk about line constraints and global constraints? Yeah, uh, one of the common questions that we get is the line constraints and the global constraints question. What you'll see on the reasons report from the company is just a generic, hey, you did not uh, get this or you did not satisfy due to line constraints or global constraints. Big picture, the line constraints you can think of as buffers, international buffers would be one, men days off protection, men days off period, block days off pattern. And if you don't know what that is, for a five-week month, you've got to have five, four, three, three, two in days off pattern. And in a four-week month, you have to have a four and a three and a two-day block off. So global constraints, global constraints are the constraints that the company puts onto the system or into the solution, and it can be different for the bid packs. A great example of um, global constraints would be the unstacking or the absences over Christmas and holidays. They want to restrict how many pairings and R days are over that. They want to minimize it so they can put a global constraint around Christmas, the week before Christmas, and that is totally up to them where they can put it. Global constraints can also be a general, it could be zero open time. If they want to use all the trips in their bucket, we call it, they can input zero open time and the solution will drive the solution to emptying the bucket, leaving all reserved. If you see every month the company puts out a line range and a target, one, the target means nothing. It's just the mean or the average of the two, uh, the low and the high. That's all it is. Uh, but what we fight for typically is a larger Spread, when you have a smaller spread, it's just less solutions and less preferences. Contractually, the spread for lines, the max spread is 13. Correct. And we always go to 13 when we're building lines because that gives us the maximum flexibility to build as many good quality lines that we want to build. In the secondary world, if you start with 13, you have the maximum number of possibilities of secondary lines you can have having a line spread. If you go down to 12, it's less. 10, less than that. You could bring the spread down to a number, four, five, six, 
that there is one solution for secondaries. And right now, the company can pick whatever spread they want. There are a lot of frustrating things in secondaries, and we feel the frustration as well every single month. Well, each podcast, we've been asking pilots to send in questions. One pilot wrote in, I think a useful discussion about using and getting the most out of our deviation banks could be helpful. Can you talk some about that? I'll say that. We have our Scheduling Matters series of PDFs on the website. And I think this is something we could have our Scheduling Matters guru, Ted Donnett, work on. And possibly we could put something out discussing how deviation banks, how to manipulate them, how to use them. And yeah, sounds like a great category for uh, Scheduling Matters. Okay. Another question we got from a pilot is, I understand no one can predict the future, but when does the SIG chair estimate Anchorage MD-11s will go mostly domestic? On this one, I would say just roll the dice. If you recall last month, I was saying they were going to park 12 MD-11s, and now it may not be 12. They were saying we were going to lose all international on the MD-11 for quite some time now. It's coming, but when it's going to happen, I don't know. There's been an increase in demand recently, which has helped us out. We picked up some customers from our competitor, and that's been helping the MD-11 hang on for the time being. As you said, we, they delayed retiring them until uh, 2024. So again, I'm on the MD-11. I, I hope we can hang on for a while longer, but I don't know what's going to happen in January. I couldn't tell you right now. I wish I had some prediction. I don't. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about? So something else happened last month. In the 767, if the flight's over 735, it requires either enhanced sleep opportunity, which is 36 off before and after the leg, or you have a crew rest module. On that leg in Asia, the airplane showed up without a crew rest module, and that crew called in fatigued. The contract language talks about the crew can waive the enhanced sleep opportunity, but I'm not sure the company followed the correct procedures as I read the CBA. I think we're taking a hard look at it for a grievance. Uh, I think that crew that called in fatigue are my heroes. I want to thank them for doing that. But we've been working with the company on making sure if they are going to schedule these over 735 and the 767 that it has the crew rest module. And I know they're addressing it and we'll be discussing it with the grievance committee this week. Marty, Mike, thanks again for coming. We've created an email, fdxpodcastquestions at alpa.org, if you'd like to ask Marty any questions to be answered in future podcasts. You can also utilize the DART link at fdx.alpa.org. Thanks again for listening, and as always, be safe out there, and we'll see you next time.